Well, thank you for the wonderful music, and good to see your masks again tonight, or to this morning, rather. Uh, we're glad to be with you again. In case you don't know who I am, I'm David Packer. I'm a, a former pastor of international churches. We've pastored three international churches uh, in Singapore for 12 years, and um, we've been in Stuttgart, Germany, for the last 12 years of our ministry. And I retired about over a year ago, and uh, my wife, Lana's with me. We run a, she is the director of it. She runs it. I serve on the board, but run a ministry to victims of human, explo of human trafficking, sexual exploitation. So that's what we do in their lives right now. Uh, but I'm also preaching in different churches and helping uh, where I can. Last week I was in Leichendam, Netherlands. Uh, and this week I'm, where am I? Is this Prague? The Prague? Wherever you call it. And uh, next week I'll be in preaching in Stuttgart, my um, former church there. And then the following week I was supposed to be in Norway, but that got canceled because of, uh, of COVID. The pastor was supposed to go someplace else. I was going to fill in for him, but he can't go, so there's no need for me to go. But uh, we'll look forward to open the weeks ahead and be able to get back. I'd like to uh, ask you to have your Bible open it to Ephesians chapter 1. A good question to ask of cultures is, when does Christmas end? Uh, every nation seems to have a different answer to that. When does Christmas end? Um, Christmas ends different places. In the Philippines, we were missionaries there for several years back in the 80s. And Philippines, it doesn't hardly come to an end. I think they just turn off the lights at the end of January and they turn it back on about October or something. Uh, it has a long Christmas season. Uh, in other places, especially in America, it ends uh, very quickly on the uh, 25th of, of December. So for Americans, Christmas was yesterday, today is not Christmas. It's something else, whatever it is. Of course, the Brits have clarified it's Boxing Day. That's a good, good idea. Name it the 26th, that way you know there's something else after Christmas. As far as I can tell, no one knows what Boxing Day really means or where it came from. The history is, not, is unclear, at least that's according to the sources I've called upon. They, and there have been different explanations, but no official explanation other than that's what they called it. Uh, but uh, I don't know what it is in, in Prague and in, uh, in Germany. It sort of winds down around the 25th or something like that. Uh, but I'm going to move on past Christmas today because I want to get us prepared for the next leap in the future, and that is the new year. Uh, I'd like to help us get focused on, on thinking in terms of newness and what does, what does the future hold for, for us. I don't know how you say uh, Happy New Year here. In Germany, they have this quaint little expression, uh, and it means a good slide, which is a slide. And they mean you're going to slide from one year into the next. Uh, we may say, make it, I hope it's a smooth transition for you from 2021, 2022. But it's good to think again of terms of what does the future hold for us. In Christmas, we look back at the birth of our Savior. But now we're going to be looking forward into what does the future hold because He came. What does the future hold for you and for me? Who are we and where are we going? Well, we're going to talk about who you really are. And our text is Ephesians chapter uh, 1. We're just going to read the first few verses. So, you follow me in your Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. By the way, no one told me when you stop, when I'm supposed to stop preaching. When are you all you going to leave? Anybody can tell me that? Anytime? 2022. I'm sorry? 
Okay, 2022. Good. I've got a while. I've got to. No, I plan. Usually my sermons last about three hours and 40 minutes, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to make this one shorter, just one hour. No, it'll be about half an hour, so I'll be done. I'm retired. I'm not trying to work anymore. <laughs> I've learned to be a man of few words. At least I've tried to. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, one of the unique things about Paul, in fact, is consistent in all of his letters, even Galatians, which he did not have many good things to say at the beginning of his letter, but he always describes the believers in the highest possible terms. We ought to do the same for one another. We really ought to. Rather than seeing our faults, we ought to see what we are in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, it doesn't take a genius to realize there's a lot of theology in those few verses. Um, in English, when you learn English in school, we're taught not to write or make what call them run-on sentences. That is where you have a sentence just keeps going. We're taught to make our sentences be concise, logical statements to have a beginning and have a period. And then you form another sentence if you have another thought. That's good English, but Greek does have run-on sentences, and here's one of them. Uh, it wasn't considered bad grammar in Greek to have a long, long, long sentence. Uh, and that's what we have here in Paul's writing. He's describing our salvation, who we are in Christ Jesus. And it is central to all that we become to understand our true identity in Christ. Who are you? We each have an idea of who we are. And we define ourselves along different, uh, different pathways, different concepts we've gained. Sometimes we can say, well, this is what people have told me I am. So that's what I am. I'm assuming that what they've told me is correct. And if you're a handsome person, or if you're a beautiful young lady, or you you're, you've looked good, then people say, oh, you look nice. And you, you think, well, I'm a good-looking person. If, on the other hand, you have been, been insulted, or you felt that you're not as good-looking as you would like to be, and that's where most of us are, 
uh, you feel that this limits you and this is who you are. I'm the person who's not as good looking as others. Or maybe it's wealth that's defined you or the lack of it. I wish I had more. Or maybe it's your education or your background. Or maybe it's something very shameful that you've done that defines you. Or maybe it's something that someone said to you that has really hurt you. And, and maybe you were bullied as in school or someplace else in your life. Or you've been traumatized and this has defined you. This has shaped your understanding of who you are. Psychologists use the word complex. We talk about having an a, a inferiority complex or a superiority complex. But what complex really means, it has the idea that in our, in our minds, not our brains, but in our minds, um, it, we have formed certain pathways. And it does become in our brains as well, but it's the way our minds think. And, and we, we, we go back to a certain point, and just like a paths in a forest. If you have a place in a forest where several paths, paths cross, then that would be complex. And if we have a central thought in our minds, it becomes complex in our thinking. That is more and more of our paths of thinking go back to that event or that understanding. And that's who we are. That's what they use the word complex means. There's something in me that I always go back to. Maybe it's a painful memory. Maybe it's something you're terribly ashamed of. Maybe it's something that you've been blamed for. Maybe you're so, it's something you're afraid people find out about you, but it's something your mind goes back to and you say, that's who I am. Well, what I'd like to do this morning is take the text and let our minds go back to that, to this understanding of who we are. Because here it gives us a wonderful description of who we truly are. Uh, this passage is a classic Trinitarian theological passage. Paul describes who we are in, in terms of the Father, in terms of the Son, and in terms of the Spirit. So it's a, a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Uh, one of the, the best uh, illustrations I've read about how to understand the Trinity is to compare it to rain. There are three aspects of rain that we experience, and I think snow would also fit in that in this category. Uh, but we'll just use the illustration of rain. There's first of all the invisible part of the rain process, and that is condensation. And condensation is something we cannot see with our eyes, but it's going on all around us all the time. That is, moisture is being gathered out of the air and is coming up to the sky and forming clouds. And that's condensation. That's the process of condensation. That illustrates the Father. The Father's working behind the scenes. He's always working. We can't see Him working, but He's always at work. And He's always gathering events, pulling them together for the coming of Christ. Also, He's at work in our lives, providentially so, to bring what He desires to be in our life. To, in the fullness of time, Christ shall return. The Father is always gathering, unseen, but He's always doing this. And that's what the condensation is a good picture of the Father. But then there's the rain, the rain that falls. And the rain is what we can feel and what we can experience. And, and that's a good picture of the sun. The sun has come and we have seen the sun. As John writes, our hands have handled him. We, we heard him. We saw him. Uh, we knew he was real. And, and the sun in history, although we don't see with our eyes today, we still know him as an historical figure. And he is God whom we can see. And then there's another process of rain. If it didn't have this third process, rain would not help us any on this earth. And the whole planet would be dead. And that's the process of absorption. 
That is, the rain must sink into the earth. And as the rain sinks into the earth, it transforms the earth, and the earth is different because the rain is now in it. If we did not have this principle of absorption, no matter how much was condensed and formed into clouds, no matter how much rain fell, it would be useless because it couldn't change the earth. But the process of absorption changes things. It sinks into the ground and makes it fertile and makes it able to, to grow life. And that's the picture of the Holy Spirit in our life. He is God who changes us. He is God who comes and changes our hearts and our lives. Well, this is a, just an idea of what we're looking at in this today's message. Now, first thing is this. God the Father planned your salvation before the world was created. Our text said, said this, we just read, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Realize that. In the heavenly places. Our salvation was planned, not here on earth, not in the midst of a confusing, frustrating situation. It wasn't the night before the cross that, that God decided he was going to save us or save you. It wasn't even as Mary was, 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 uh, was having childbirth and giving all, all the pain associated with that, that God the Father said, oh yeah, there's a, there a Savior coming into the world, I better start making some plans. So it wasn't that. Rather, before the world was ever created, God already planned your salvation. And that's where the true you was really formed. The true you was already formed in the heart of God before you were ever born. That should be an encouraging thing for us because you think about we often form our identity, as I mentioned, by mistakes we've made or things people have said to us or our failures or maybe even our successes. But the real you was identified in the calmness, in the serenity, in the wisdom of heaven. And there, when God knew all things, past, present, and future, when God could see all things that were going to happen, when God knew who you're going to be on this day, He planned your salvation. And that's encouraging. Your salvation wasn't a reaction after something happened in heaven, and God said, well, we better think about maybe saving these people. No. He knew what would happen even before it happened, and our salvation was settled there. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Our children had the habit, and I've, we raised three children. They're all great. Mother in their 40s now, and they're all successful. Our, our sons are making uh, more money now that, than uh, I ever thought about making, and our daughter is spending more money now than... Uh, no, she's married. You got a good husband. He's making <laughs> successful living too. But, but um, I remember those days when they were in school. And parents, you may remember this. Your kids ever act like they're doing you a favor to make good grades? You ever do that? Too? Ours always did. Like they make bad grades. They say, well, I'm sorry. I disappointed you. Like that was the whole point of making good grades. And you had these conversations with them. like, well, And they always made the same excuse. I think children worldwide, like they must have some interconnectedness to their brains because they all make the same excuse. Like they would say, they make a bad grade. Our kids did do well, but when, every now and then they make a bad grade. And they'd say, well, there were three other kids in the class that did worse than I did. Ever use that excuse? You know, they're great. But when my comeback was this. So that's your standard? 
to be a little smarter than the three dumbest kids in the class? How's it going to work out for your life, son? <laughs> Where are you going to go with this? I mean, would it work on your sports team? If you were like just a little better than the three worst players on the team, why don't you look for the best and try to be like him? Of course, they knew what I was saying. Uh, but we have the idea also with God to say, well, we're just going to be good for God. It's in his best interest I'd be good, not in my best interest. But it's in his best interest. And I guess in my best interest, so he won't zap me with some lightning bolt or something. But that's not what this passage says. It says something very different. It says, in love, in love, he predestined us. In love, he wanted us to be different. In love, he cared for us. And he wanted us to be holy and blameless before him. He wanted us to be washed with the blood of Christ. And he wanted us to make the best choices in life. He wanted us to be wise in what we do and how we behave. And he planned all of that. He planned all of that. He wanted us to know him and to have fun in life obeying him and following him. That was God's plan for us. God determined our true potential. And God determined, that means your true potential in eternity past. The source was heaven, the choice chosen in Christ, the end result was adoption to God's family, and the means that was also established, grace experienced through our faith, was already decided by the Father, and that should encourage us. That's who you really are, and you are not big enough to mess this up. You're not powerful enough to mess it up. God's greater than you, and that's what God planned for you. He's never forgotten no matter what you or others have done to you, God has not forgotten his plan for you. Ben Hooper was the governor of the great state of Tennessee in the United States. He tells a story of a guest preacher in his church that, that God used to change his way of thinking. Ben Hooper's father deserted them. He was raised in a poor family, barely had enough to get by. And at one time, uh, he had a guest preacher in church and he was trying to get out. Now, this guest preacher did what some preachers do. I don't personally do this, but maybe your next pastor will. It's not anything good or bad, in my opinion, at least in doing this. But some pastors stand at the back door and shake everybody's hand when they leave. Have you ever been in a church like that? And you've got to shake the pastor's hand before you get out. Well, that was that type of church. And the guest pastor was standing there shaking hands. And Ben knew I wanted to get out, but he didn't want to meet the new preacher. And so he was trying to get around. And he tried to sneak by, and the guy stopped him and grabbed him by the hand. And he was a young teenager. And he said, who are you? Whose boy are you? And Ben Hooper thought, oh, no, here it goes again. The embarrassment of his family, that he had a father who had deserted them. He, he didn't want to go to that conversation. He was tired of having it. And the preacher looked at him and said, wait a minute. I know you're God's child. I can see it in your eye. And then he said, you have a great inheritance in him. Go out and claim it. And he realized suddenly that all of the excuses he'd been making about his life, all the ways he had defined himself were inadequate compared to the fact that he was God's son. He was God's child. No matter how we see ourselves, if we haven't seen ourselves yet as the one chosen by God before the foundation of the world, be holy and, holy and blameless in him, we haven't understood ourselves well enough. Now, the second thing it says, 
is that Christ the Son has lavished on us his great love to redeem us. It says, in him we have the redemption through his blood. And there's the cross. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. The riches of his grace, lavishing on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of times. Unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. Again, a great theological statement, but it simply means that Christ loved us. Again, like the rain, Christ is God we feel. Christ is God we can measure and touch. Historically for us, but he came in real time to this earth. And he is the God we know. And he's the only God we're going to see, by the way. When we get to heaven, we're not going to see three thrones. There's not going to be three thrones in heaven. We'll never see the Father even in heaven. We'll only see the Son. But it will be enough. Remember, Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We won't be wondering, when are we going to get to see the Father? We've seen Jesus on the throne. That will be enough. That will be enough for us. But he wants us to know how greatly he loved us. And his love is concrete. It's specific because of his life here. We can see it. We can read the Gospels. Let the Spirit take the things he said to others. And the love he showed to others, let them apply it to our heart and our life. And it becomes very personal. Peter wrote to new Gentile believers. And he said something that must have shocked the early apostles. But he said to them, you love Christ. You love Jesus of Nazareth, even though you have never seen him. And it's a unique thing of Christians that we sing about Jesus. We say we love Jesus, and it is true. We love him because he loved us, and it's not just a theory. It's something he's done with us. Somehow the Spirit has made our hearts connect with him, and we know that he loves us. And again, to quote Peter, we love him even though we've never seen him. We've never seen him with our eyes. The apostles all had seen Jesus. And they could say, yeah, I know what he looks like. I knew his family. I knew his brothers. I know who Jesus of Nazareth was. I know who Christ, uh, Christ Jesus is as well. But we look at him from an historical situation, but still he's, it's a personal love. It's a personal love. And now we have someone who reaches down into our life and, and touches us with his grace and his love. And now we can say, I love him. The love of God is personal. Just to be that way. Sometimes our love, uh, or at least we call it that way, gets to be something abstract where we know uh, we are supposed to love Jesus, but just nothing personal. We don't feel anything. Uh, Tim Keller, um, you may know who he is. Tim Keller uh, wrote a book, and there's several books he wrote, but one of his books he talks about speaking to a 16-year-old girl when he was a pastor. And, um, and she was coming in with 16-year-old girl problems, and they were related to a boy. Uh, and, uh, and so he was counseling her as her pastor and talking with her. And, and she was having boy problems. And that ruled her whole outlook on life. And, and he tried to reason with her and said, you know, God loves you. God loves you. And, and her response was classic. She said, I know God loves me. But what does that matter if I can't get a boy to look at me? 
And then she thought of the love of God in terms of simply a philosophical idea, not a personal possession. But the love for Christ is to be something deeply personal. It's not merely a good feeling that we, we, we create in ourselves or the circumstances create. Rather, it's a response to the gospel and the Spirit's work in our lives where we have an idea of who this Jesus is. In 2 Corinthians 4, she, Paul wrote about seeing the love of God in the, in the face of Christ. The face is a face of identity. Again, they had not seen the face of Jesus. They did not have pictures of Jesus in their churches in, in the first century. They did not have pictures of Jesus with the beard or without the beard or with the children without the... They didn't have anything like that. They did not have photographs in that day. But he used the word face of Christ. And what had happened is the Spirit had somehow created in their hearts an idea of who this Jesus was. And that redefined them. That redefined them in their terms of who they were. This common value of eternity is extreme love. When we get to heaven, we're going to be amazed at how greatly God truly loves us. You know, our personal love for Christ is a clear indication of how well we are prepared for eternity. If we really love Him, it, we're, we're, prepared, we're better prepared for eternity. But it is something the Spirit is doing in our hearts and lives today. Now, the third the third part of this is the Holy Spirit's at work within us. And he makes much of this in the second, in the third part of the section we, we have read. In verse 11, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, have been predestined according to the purpose of him, works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he's really describing the work of the Spirit there, although he doesn't use the word Spirit until we get down to verse 13. He says, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, by the way, you probably didn't know it, but you landed right in the middle of a Greek, a biblical Greek uh, scholarly debate on how you translate that verse. I don't know how many different translations we have here. But if you have an NIV, you may notice in the footnote, it says something about verse 11, I believe. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Unless you study biblical Greek, um, it, it would not necessarily be an argument you would find interesting. But what it describes basically is this. The problem in Greek language is they have the same form for both passive and middle voice verbs. Anybody care to know what a middle voice verb is? Well, the middle voice is reflexive. Uh, and it, something comes back upon yourself. Like you say, I addressed myself. That's an action, but it reflects back. That's the middle voice, reflects back upon you. Some of you have idioms like that. But uh, Greek had the middle voice and had the passive voice. It mean, my mother dressed me. That's the passive voice. I was dressed by my mother. Well, that's passive voice for me. Uh, but it, it used the same form. In other words, the verbs would look identical in the Greek language. It, you'd require the context to understand it. Well, there's a division in Christian scholarship as to what is being said here exactly. It doesn't change theology. It doesn't change what we find elsewhere in Scripture. It doesn't change what was written in the original Greek manuscripts. It just has to do with how you're going to translate it. <laughs> 
what form are you going to take? Because modern translations have tend to go with the middle voice, and uh, some translations now are choosing the passive voice. Here the middle voice says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance. That is, in Christ we have our inheritance. The passive voice says, in him we have become his inheritance. And that's the more secure thought. Now actually, I'm of those that believe that's the way it should be translated. I've got good weight on my side. In fact, the Berean study Bible, if you look, you'll see it's translated that way. But his emphasis is both, the, both these truths. We have both received an inheritance in him, but we are also his inheritance. The scripture says that repeatedly of the, of the Jews and of the church. In fact, we read just down to verse 18. We see the same thing. He's having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? His glorious inheritance in the saints. And I believe the passive voice actually fits better in the whole context because it describes a deposit being given to guarantee the reception, the reception of it, to guarantee that he can receive it. And it makes more sense to say he gave the deposit, therefore he's talking about what he gains. But picture this just for a second. Both truths are there. He is our inheritance, and the Spirit is given to us, giving us that assurance that we will get our inheritance, but also you are his inheritance. And the Spirit is given to mark his territory, making sure that he will receive you. He'll receive us. And he has died for you. He has sent the Spirit as a deposit. And he will fulfill his plans for you. To me, that has a whole different level of assurance. Uh, that I'm saved not because I have done something and I'm trying to earn my way even through faith. Into heaven. No, it's not that way at all. Salvation is not a slippery rope that God has let down out of heaven that I've got to hold on to and just hope I can hold on tight enough until he pulls me up. No. Salvation is God himself reaching down into my life and grabbing hold of me and saying, I will not let go. I have hold of you. You are my inheritance. I died for you. And I sent my spirit. I claim you. You are my inheritance. And I will not let go of you the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. Witness Lee, you may have heard of him. I won't explain who he is. He wrote these words. God desires to inherit all that he has wrought into us of himself. Therefore, whatever God has wrought into us of himself becomes his inheritance. God will work within us to make us worthy, precious, and valuable, a unique treasure in the universe as our inheritance for him. God is the treasure, and he is working himself as the treasure into us that we may become a treasure to him. So that's God's inheritance. Not what we offer to him, but what he is doing inside of us. The Bible says our righteous acts are like filthy rags, but God's work in us is permanent, it's eternal. And what he wishes to inherit is all that he has wrought, all that he has done in us, all that he has made in us. So as he works in us, as he builds us up, as he transforms us, he's preparing us for heaven and he's preparing us for himself. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. What he's doing in us. That's who you are. 
You are that person who God, before the world was created, God saw you, God knew you, and God knew you would be at this moment, and God planned for your salvation to exist, you'd be a new creature in Him, and He is not going to forget. He's not going to forget. He knows who you are. And you're the one who Christ died for and Christ lives for and Christ is at work now through his word by his spirit transforming your heart and your life. And you're the one whom God assured and gained and said you are his. He will not let you go. There's a different way the spirit uses, speaks about the, the Bible speaks about the spirit, excuse me. In our, in our lives, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament uses the phrase, the Spirit indwells us. He comes inside us. We are filled with the Spirit. In the Old Testament, it's very uncommon to see words like that. Most often, the Old Testament describes the Spirit coming upon someone. Uh, but in the New Testament, it's the Spirit indwelling someone, a different imagery. Uh, there is one notable exception of that. That is, uh, this character named Bezalel in the Old Testament. Uh, Bezalel was the one who crafted uh, the, the um, Ark of the Covenant. He was the one who, who put those things together. And Bezalel, his story is told in Exodus 35 and 36. And Bezalel it is actually the phrase is, he shall be filled with the Spirit. Unusual for the Old Testament. You realize in the tabernacle of the temple, they had no artifacts that had any faces on them. There would be no images in the, in the temple or in the, in the tabernacle before that. You walked into the tabernacle, of course, you'd have to be a priest to get in, but you walk in the tabernacle, you'd see no faces. But there was an exception. That is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had two angels. And angels would have a face. And they were crafted by Bezalel. How could you do such a thing as to craft in the temple of God an image of, of a face of an angel unless you were filled with the Spirit? Which is exactly what we read. He was filled with the Spirit. So Bezalel had a God-given ability to do that work. And God makes a big, uh, a, a big deal of this, makes a major point of this, that Bezalel was his, his representative who was able to do that. And craft those faces of the angels. Well, it's interesting. Uh, many things we can make out of that. But one of the things that's interesting is just the whole idea of what it means to this day and age of living for God. Because the name Bezalel is significant also. Bezalel means the shadow of the Almighty. That's the picture. Now I thought, wow, what a picture of the Christian life. That here is God, and a shadow is in that darkness as the light shines. That takes the light. That gets hit by the light. But here in the shadow is where we are to stand. Christ is to get the attention. Christ is to get the glory. Christ is to be the one who gets the praise. And we're to be here in the shadow, being safe in Him, not calling attention to ourselves, hiding ourselves behind the cross, letting others see Christ, and not us. What a wonderful picture of the Christian life that is to be. Uh, we are to simply stand in His shadow and let Him do His work in us, be grateful for our eternity in Him, be settled and secure in our hearts, and to rest in Him. Well, I pray this message will be an encouragement to you as you look at the new year of 2022. 
you're a precious child of God. If you trusted in Christ, you're a precious child of God. He's got a great plan for you. You've got a great inheritance. And go out and claim it. If you've never trusted in Him, or you've never already made that decision, and you're trying to get to heaven for good works, or maybe through your parents' faith, or faith of someone else, uh, then today is a great day to say, Lord, I take you as my Savior. You make that personal decision. Lord, I take you as my Savior. You know, uh, someone said, God has many children, but God has no grandchildren. Every child of God must trust, himself, trust Christ personally. So, if you haven't made that decision, make it today. Trust in Him. And you also receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of knowing Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love. And Lord, as we close this service with a song, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. And, and we pray that you would make it real in us what you're doing in our life and in this world. In your name we pray. Amen.